This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of the show, plus the chance to vote on upcoming topics, while full members get all that, plus members-only bonus episodes. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the distant and recent history of conservatism in America, and follow the steps that have led to their rejection of science, leading the GOP to become one of the most dangerous groups in the history of humanity. If only that were hyperbole. Clips today come from Jacobin Radio, The Diane Rehm Show, Big Think, Past Present, The Good Fight, Democracy Now!, and The Tom Hartman Program. So, Corey, it's been a few years since uh, we did an interview about uh, reaction in general, but uh, let's just review your, your overarching thesis about uh, reaction uh, and uh, as being a reaction to the left, that reactionary really means reaction, right? Yeah. So reactionary politics, reactionary thought is always a response uh, to emancipatory movements of the left. So not just the, the existence of the left, but the, a, a particular kind of left, a left that's moving, that's aiming for acts of dispossession. And those movements can change across time. The French Revolution is, is the original one. Uh, abolition was another. Uh, the labor movement was another. The black freedom struggle, the women's movement, the movements change. And what the reactionary right always sees in those movements is an attempt to dispossess uh, men of power of that power. And so that's essentially what it is. What's interesting about it is that in reacting to those movements, the right is always borrowing from the very movements that it is opposing. So there's a kind of synergy or a, a relationship between the movement and the reaction uh, that will shape the kind of reaction that takes place. And we are at a time now where it looks like the left is rather weak, and yet the reactionaries seem to be in charge. How are they dealing with success? As we've seen, it's been a huge problem for them. Uh, in fact, by their own testimony, it's almost poignant, actually, the statements you get from a lot of the Republicans who are in Congress, where they repeatedly bemoan the fact that they have something that they have been dreaming of for quite a long time, uh, namely complete and utter control over all three branches of government at this point, and yet they seem to be incapable of moving the ball forward. Uh, sorry to use that cliche. <laughs> but with the exception of the kind of regulatory or deregulatory mechanisms that Trump has been engaging in, that is to say, things that he can do in the executive, things that any president can do by virtue of being a president, with the exception of that, and that's a big exception, which we can talk about more, they've been spectacularly ineffective at advancing uh, uh, their right-wing agenda. We saw it, obviously, most clearly with the failure to repeal Obamacare. But what I've been struck by, one of the things that I've been struck by is that this entire year, there have been, I think, two continuing resolutions on the budget. These are these short-term three to four-month spending measures. And each time, the Republicans could have used that moment in order to advance some policy agenda. And both times they have failed. The, the budgets they ended up passing look remarkably like the budgets that Barack Obama had, would have passed. 
there's some way in which they're, they're almost proceeding as a caricature themselves. They've been in opposition for so long and running against and saying no, no, no in that very essence of reaction way that they really have a hard time not putting together something that resembles a positive agenda. Right. And I think we need to be careful about that because some people, that's one of the arguments you hear, a, a caricatured version of that argument is they were out of power so long, Republicans don't know how to govern. Well, Republicans have been out of power for many years before. Uh, they were out of power through the Clinton years. They were out of power, you know, through part of the, the Carter years. And yet they were able, when they came into power, to exercise it with a tremendous amount of dispatch. I don't think the mere fact of being out of power is enough to explain that. I think what's really going on here is they've come into power without a real left to oppose. And I think this is something that people have a very hard time grappling with, both because I think the left sometimes has an extraordinarily inflated sense of its own power, but also because if you listen to them, if you listen to Fox News, and if you listen to the rhetoric, it sounds as if they believe themselves to be besieged. But of course, that language of being besieged is always there in conservative rhetoric. I see this as a kind of the re residual reflex that they, this is how they speak. But the, the material reality is that they have been overwhelmingly successful. Uh, and we could look at a whole bunch of measures to see that. But now we, that we see them to be that, you know, their first year in power and not able to do a thing, I think that's really the final testament of the fact that they've been successful. I mean, I keep coming back to this. Someone like Donald Trump could never, ever in a million years have been, have not, forget elected, nominated by the party uh, during the Cold War, uh, for instance. There was just way too much at stake. Their victory since the end of the Cold War, and really with, with the George W. Bush you know, tax cuts, that victory has allowed them what I call the luxury of irresponsibility. Uh, they can experiment. They can they can play this clownish game, uh, in part because they have achieved so much. There's always been uh, a tension in conservative thought between uh, those who revere the market and the capitalist versus the warrior and the statesman. And you know, we saw this uh, brought forward during the George W. Bush years when uh, the neocons uh, rejected the the economism of the Clinton years in favor of you know heroic foreign uh foreign adventures and imperial uh, grand grandiosity how's that working out now <laughs> so this is really interesting I mean, you know i think that was our first radio show was in fact talking about precisely this phenomenon in the wake of the cold war and you did see a lot of these neocons who were you know really scanned i mean and this is what brought me to the conservative movement uh, not as a uh, not as a fan but as a, a reader of it uh, and they were so they were scandalized by what you would have thought would have been the triumph of their vision namely bill clinton's america where you know markets were everything foreign policy was going to be driven by markets and they were sh and they were horrified and they felt that it was you know decadent and as you say, you know, the neocons really saw in the war on terror and the war on Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, this opportunity not to pursue oil or something so pedestrian as that, but for imperial greatness. How is it working out? I mean, I think by the end of the Bush years, we saw that it was pretty much a shambles. What was sort of surprising that McCain got the nomination was that McCain was so uh, identified with that. I think to some degree, people can overstate this, but I think it's pretty clear that Trump's 
nomination by the Republican Party signaled that, that the Republican Party had really sidelined in certain ways that kind of neoconservative imperial grandiosity. I don't want to say he's an anti-interventionist or anything like that, because in many ways, the policies have been fairly continuous. But at least rhetorically, there's no doubt that that wing of the party is looked upon with a tremendous degree of suspicion. And of course, they look upon him with a great deal of suspicion. Many of them uh, endorsed Clinton, uh, or at least refused to endorse Trump. Um, so I don't think that kind of vision has been working out all that well. I don't know how much we want to get into Trump right now. Well, now this is the way to get into Trump. In his Asian trip, he's talking about how he doesn't want to pay for troops in Japan anymore. I mean, this really undermines 60-some, 70 years of American imperial strategy. Mm -hmm. So he wants to make it into a matter of money when, in fact, our semi-occupation of Japan and <laughs> many other countries in the world have been at the root of American power for all these decades. And he seems to be undermining it from within without much of a thought about it. Yeah. What's going on with it? I mean, it's super interesting to me. You know, the initial impression of Trump was, you know, the kind of America first year and that he'd be totally willing to exercise military power. There's a kind of thrumming militarism at the core of his conception of American state power. But as you say, there's an economism that lies at the heart of the whole thing. And everything is about economic transactions and all the rest of it. I think it tells you something not really about Trump, but about the state of the Republican Party and the conservative movement, that they allowed this to kind of come forward. Now, of course, the policies have not been all that different. I mean, he's, like I said, you know, ever since he's been fairly continuous. I mean, remember, he was threatening to pull out of NATO and everybody freaked out about that. Of course, nothing like that has happened. But the fact that they allowed uh, this guy to step forward, I think, really tells you something about either the weakness of the party or the weakness of the ideology, which was so seamless, you know, that anti-communist militarism, free market capitalism, and then the kind of social conservative, they, you know, the conservatism was the, the three-legged stool, they called it. And it all was supposed to fit together. And it doesn't really anymore. You know, Jonah, when you say Trumpism is kind of a psychological phenomenon, what do you mean? I mean, you say it's coming out of Trump's brain, but how does that affect everybody around him? My colleague at National Review, Rick Brookheiser, pointed out that Donald Trump actually needs weak supporters in the sense of weak-minded. And Donald Trump demands weak-mindedness from people. He demands that people around him nod their head and celebrate when he says something stupid. They can't criticize him. And the, the most profound ex uh, example of this is that if you look at, I don't know, like Senator Bob Corker or Senator Ben Sass or even Mitch McConnell, who are sort of hated by the Breitbart crowd because they have dared to criticize Donald Trump or say they disagree with him or condemned the Access Hollywood tape or whatever. Those are the people who are being driven from the Republican Party. But if you actually look at their voting records, you know, they voted with Trump so between 85 and 99 percent of the time. Meanwhile, you look at Rand Paul, who has done more to thwart 
Donald Trump's legislative agenda than any other senator. But he always praises Donald Trump, huh. always says Donald Trump is a great guy. Right. And no and the Breitbart crowd, the Bannon crowd, Donald Trump himself, they never go after him because what's more important is the president's vanity than the actual legislative or ideological agenda. It is it is, you know, I keep trying to tell people who want to say that Donald Trump is Hitler. You know, he's not Hitler. Hitler, Hitler could have Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. Um, uh, Donald Trump is basically not interested in politics. He's interested in praise. He's interested in his own ratings, as it were. And the legislative and ideological agenda takes a back seat. And I think one of the reasons why Republican politics and CPAC and all of these things are so ugly right now is that he goes wherever he gets the most adoration. And so he goes to these rallies and he says terrible things about immigrants, terrible things about Mexicans, and it revs them up and he draws sustenance from that. And he says, aha, these are the kinds of talking points I need to continue with because that's where I get the greatest support. And that's not a po political agenda. That is a bizarre psychological phenomenon. What about the supportive white evangelicals and the uh, support of women Combine those two groups and tell me what kind of support they are giving Trump today. The Republican Party has had a problem with, with white suburban women, never mind African-American women, for a while. You know, we, this, are they soccer moms? Are they security moms? You know, George W. Bush won or lost based upon tweaking at the very fine margins turnout among those women because they are the they are the difference between victory and defeat. And Donald Trump, I mean I haven't looked at the polls closely on this question lately, but Donald Trump has huge problems in the affluent college educated suburban um, segments of this country which contrary to a lot of journalism out there and contrary to Donald Trump's own assumptions is more of the base more, the more important part of the Republican coalition than the non-college educated sort of uh, white rural voter and suburbanites suburban republicans who may and particularly suburban women republicans or republican leaning women um, who may actually agree and like the tax cuts and like the judges and like this and like that at the same time are just embarrassed by the president's composure and demeanor and his tactics and his rhetoric. And people, I think, this is my own theory, and I'm sure you've seen this as you go around the country, is just that Donald Trump sucks up all the oxygen. Everyone feels like it, he gets in everyone's head. And I think the Republicans in the, going into the midterms are going to have a real problem with those people. As for evangelicals, I'm, I'm dismayed. I've spent most of my professional life defending uh, white evangelical conservatives. Um, I think they've been in the past really unfairly demonized in the culture and in the press. But what has happened, particularly under the leadership of people like Jerry Falwell Jr., has been, I would say it's scandalous, but it's just, it's just plain fascinating. In 2011, the, the, demogra the, the slice of the electorate that was least likely to forgive sexual or other tr personal transgressions in a politician were white evangelicals. Only 30% of white evangelicals had said, if you um, are uh, a bad person in your private life, you know, you cheat on your wife, whatever, however they use the form the question, if, if, if you're immoral in your private life, you probably can't be a good public servant either. Only 30% felt that you could be a good public servant and be immoral in your private life. In 2016, 
not only did that number more than double, like something like 71% of white evangelicals now say that, um, or at least in 2016 said, that you could be immoral in your private life and still be a good public leader. White evangelical voters who are in the popular culture considered these Comstockish, prudish, you know, uh, uh, puritanical people are now the most forgiving of personal lapses of morality in politicians than any other demographic. You know, it almost sounds as though there's a kind of brainwashing going on. Well, I think there is in a sense that um, I, I think part of it is is the deeply transactional nature of, of the Trump presidency, where he basically just says, you guys need to support my ego and say nice things about me. And in exchange, I'll give you your judges and I'll give you the laws that you want and I'll be against abortion and all that. And I think there are a lot of people who have just made that Machiavellian calculation. But at a broader level, you know, one of my pet intellectual peeves is the phrase power corrupts. Because if you actually go back to where Lord Acton actually coined that phrase, he wasn't talking about power corrupting the very powerful people. He was talking about how very powerful people corrupt everybody else, that the need to make allowances for and to forgive the transgressions of, of the very powerful is corrupting of the soul for intellectuals and politicians and normal people. And, you know, it, it goes to the useful idiots who defended Stalin, um, to the useful idiots who defended Hitler, to the people, you know, who, who glorified Castro from afar. And there's a similar dynamic here where people feel compelled to defend and support a guy because, because Donald Trump craves it so much. And it's, it's part of the political corruption that's going on is that Donald Trump has made it very clear that you must heap and lavish praise upon him to prove your support. And people are willing to do it. And it, it astonishes me. So where does all of this leave people like you who call themselves conservatives? Well, look, it's not been a fun couple of years. This is not what I don't enjoy a lot of what's happened. And I've lost some friendships and it's been rough. But, um, you know, I've fallen back on the safe harbor, as, as my friend Mona Charon put it the other day, of just telling the truth. And telling it like I see it, because I think that's the first rule of journalism, the first rule of being uh, an intellectual of any sort, is just being honest and not lying. And one of the most dismaying things I've seen in the last two years is how many people started out lying about Donald Trump and now actually believe the lies. And that's very creepy to me. Who are you talking about? Oh, people, I'm not going to get directly into names, but there are there are pundits and people, colleagues at Fox News who like two years ago would say to me, I can't believe I have to defend this guy. And I would respond, you don't. That's not your job. And now if you talk to them, they don't say, I can't believe I have to defend this guy. They actually believe what they're saying about him. I mean, it's, that's the, the, I mean, that's the kind of brainwashing that drives me absolutely batty. It's, it's, it's an invasion of the body snatchers feeling where your friends go to sleep one night and wake up in the morning you know, uh, praising our new orange overlord. And you're like, what happened to you? I don't get it.
We're getting down to crunch time this election season, and what happens in the next three weeks will determine the direction of the country for the next two years. If we flip just 23 districts in the House, Democrats will take back the majority, and many strong progressives will sit as the heads of many powerful congressional committees. And that's the best chance we have to put a check on Trump and the parade of horrors coming out of the Congress. Swing Left is helping organize volunteers to help get this done. When you join at swingleft.com, org slash left, you'll be immediately connected with other volunteers in your area who are working to win the race in a nearby swing district. You'll find out where and how you can make the most impact on flipping the house starting right now. Everyone who really wants to take a stand must do more than vote this year. We need to get fired up, get off the couch, and volunteer. Join Swing Left to find your nearest swing district and take action now. Again, you can sign up at swingleft.org slash left. Left. 2008 of the of the Republican big Republican presidential uh, candidates, they were asked, uh, uh, "How many of you believe in in Darwinian biological evolution?" Two thirds or three quarters said, "I do." 2012, same question asked, same group of people, Republican presidential candidates. It was already down to a third. 2016. The 17 people, uh, main candidates for the Republican nomination, asked, do you believe in evolution? One, Jeb Bush, brave Jeb Bush, said he did. But, he said, uh, walking it back even as he said it, uh, I'm not sure it should be taught in our public schools, and if it is, it should be taught along with creationism. So, uh, from 2008 to 2016, that was the change. And that changes. I don't believe all those people believed what they said. I, I don't think all of them disbelieve in evolution, some of them, but they were all obliged to, to say yes to, to falsehood and magical thinking of this religious kind. Um, and, and that's where it becomes problematic. America has always been a Christian nation. That, that meant a very different thing a hundred years ago or even 50 years ago than it means today. Uh, I grew up not uh, going to church very often at all and not with much religious education, but all of my friends were, were weekly regular churchgoers of various kinds. Christian Protestant religion became extreme, became uh, more magical and supernatural in its beliefs and practices in America than, than it had been in hundreds of years. Uh, and, and, and more so than it is anywhere else in the developed world. So you have that happening. At the same time, not coincidentally, you have the Republican Party beginning, certainly by 30 years ago, uh, becoming more and more a party of those ex- religiously extreme Protestants. So, it, it, one thing that has happened and one thing that has led, I think, the Republican Party to accept fantasy and, 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 and wishful untruth more and more into its approach to policy, whether it's climate change or, or, or the idea that, uh, a secret Muslim conspiracy is about to replace our constitutional judiciary system with Sharia law or, or any number of other Simply untrue, uh, uh, tenets of, of, of Republicanism. All these things, which were nutty fringe ideas as recently as 30 years ago, are now in the Republican mainstream. 
I think there's a connection. I think once you have a political party, more and more of whose members are uh, believe in, in in religious and supernatural fantasies of of a more and more extravagant kind, it it stands to reason or to unreason that uh, you will have a party that is more and more inclined to embrace the fantastical in its politics and policy. Believe whatever you want in the privacy of your home, in the privacy of your family, in the privacy of your church. But when it bleeds over, as it inevitably has done in America, to how we manage and construct uh, our, our economy and our society, eh, we're in trouble. For decades, the Republican Party positioned itself as the party of family values. But in recent years, normative moral claims have seemed less and less a part of the GOP's public image. In recent days, as the horrors of family separation at the border became clearer, and as the majority of Republicans voiced support for the policy, many were left wondering what exactly happened to the party of family values. Neil, you've written about this for Slate. What do you think happened here with the Republican Party? Well, you know, it's one of those things I've been thinking about so much, I don't really even know where to start. I suppose an easy answer would just be to say Trump. And I think a lot of people have been saying that. But I actually think that Trump isn't really the beginning of the end of family values as much as he, as you said to me recently, Nikki, Trump is really the nail in the coffin on family values. And I think what we see is shifts happening in the party in the 1990s and the early aughts, particularly in the George Bush administration, where the language starts shifting away from family values to religious liberty. And Ralph Reed at the time, the former president of Christian Coalition, said that religious right leaders started changing their language from family values to religious liberty because they thought that family values was too associated with single-issue voters. And what they wanted to do in the shift to a religious liberty language was to create kind of a much larger umbrella term that would bring more conservatives into the politics they were trying to advance. I think that's definitely what's happening at the kind of level of political discourse. But I think also importantly, the family values argument has been lost in some ways. If you think Mm -hmm. about, first of all, the legalization of same-sex marriage, but also increasing acceptance by Americans of homosexuality and gay rights, and this expanding notion of what families are. I think the notion of family values lost a lot of its potency when those sorts of changes happened. Or rather, it became too much of a complicated term when you have an American public that is much more accepting of family diversity. I think that's actually really, really important because family values used to signal a particular image of a particular type of family. And it doesn't have that portent anymore. It doesn't have that linguistic weight in the same way. And so it's already like a more complex, it it, it loses its kind of power. Well, not only did it signal that particular type of family, it rested on the assumption that Americans believed that was Mm -hmm. the only type of family or the best type of family. And the assumption is what has shifted. So Neil, you've, um, you mentioned the 1990s, but the story that you were telling for Slate actually began in the 1970s. What, what are the origins of this family values ideal? 
Well, family values started to be a kind of political discourse in the early 70s, and really one of the first moments that it starts getting used is around the political battle over the Equal Rights Amendment. So this proposed constitutional amendment to guarantee um, sex equality in the nation. Phyllis Schlafly and other anti-feminists took up the language of family values because they warned what the government was doing was this insidious work of inserting itself into families, taking women out of the home, making them have to become, you know, workers and disconnected from their marriage and their family life. And so Schlafly and other conservatives adopted this language of family values to defend what they saw as, again, the traditional family, the male breadwinner, the female homemaker, uh, the traditional monogamous heterosexual marriage. And they deployed that idea and that language as a way of supporting the conservative politics that they carried out. And, and, and there were ways to use that um, throughout the 70s as federal abortion rights are legalized, as the gay rights movement begins to gain ground in the 1970s. Family values became the way in which the right pushed back at a lot of these progressive causes through the 70s and into the 80s. And Natalia, how does this family values argument work with the history of education? Because um, who's the biggest potential victim in terms of an erosion of family values? Well, the most vulnerable members of society, children. And so if you think that this notion of family values is this really kind of like slippery moral topic that it's hard to, you know, figure out how do you really fight for family values? Well, schools are the key place to do that. And so in my book, what I wrote about, and thanks for the shout out, Neil, and your slate piece was the way that schools really were the front lines. What I wrote about a lot was the way that sex education in particular was seen by these Mm -hmm. emerging family values conservatives as really a way to kind of crystallize um the the danger that this that this assault on family values represented like not only is the sexual revolution happening out in the streets teachers are bringing it into classrooms and they'd often call it sex instruction rather than sex education as if teachers were teaching children to actually mm-hmm. have sex and so that becomes a really one really powerful schoolhouse issue another one which I don't talk about as much in my book but there's great work on is about gay teachers there's this, um, uh, there's a, an initiative in California called the Briggs Initiative. And the idea there, this is in the late seventies, was very similar sensibility. They're going to let gay teachers near your children. They're just, that's turning the school into a recruitment ground. It's turning the school into a place where morality of the traditional family is being eroded rather than being upheld and on your tax dollars. So go vote Republican because we will stop this. And I think that that those schoolhouse issues are so important, um, in, in, in propping up the family as this not just symbolic, but actual actual realm under attack and to be protected. So, Neil, as we kind of move out of this topic, I think that, you know, Natalia bringing in the children here helps us circle back to the argument that you made in your slate piece, which is about um, family separation actually activating a lot of these old ideas about why family values needed to be protected. Could you just lay out how all of this family values conversation ties into what's happening at the border? Yes. 
one of the things that I thought about as I was seeing families ripped apart at the border in these detention facilities was that throughout the family values movement was this persistent idea that what was going to happen, what the government was after, was about separating children from their families. And here I was seeing that fantasy play out as a real nightmare. The thing that I think was so interesting and that I thought about and that I wrote about was that in the family values politics, that idea of separation was mostly of an ideological and a religious nature. Like the federal government would insert itself into families through the public school system, through the ERA, through other sorts of means, and separate children ideologically and culturally and socially and religiously Mm -hmm. from their parents' values and ideas. But here, what we see happening at the border was a physical separation, the worst type of separation, families not being metaphorically destroyed, but literally ripped apart, and at the same time, an indifference from religious conservatives. And so that's the point I wanted to write about, was that this metaphor had become reality in, a wor- in the worst possible way, and the people who had been making that claim for nearly 40 years were silent when they saw it happening to these families at the border. And so I think you know the other thing I would bring into this conversation is that this discourse has always been racialized, that has always served to prop up and defend the white family, and that we see that exposed most plainly in what's happening now at the border. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas. Thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance, and comfort, Bombas is the sock company making the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. These socks are chock full of features from their honeycomb arch support system to the cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without adding bulkiness. Not to mention Bomba's stay up technology ensures that your socks stay in place without leaving a mark. And the super soft cotton material makes you never want to take them off. And even better news for those of us who try to shop ethically, Bombas is a certified B Corporation, which is sort of like fair trade or certified organic, but for corporate business practices and their impact on workers, suppliers, the community, and the environment. Which is to say that doing good is embedded right in the fabric of each sock they make. Most famously, for every pair of Bombas you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need because socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, but it's rare that anyone thinks to donate them, so Bombas stepped in to fill that gap. To support their mission and get 20% off your first order, go to bombas.com slash left and use the code left at checkout. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash left. Offer code left and you'll get 20% off your first order. For the midterms minute, a look at the candidates and races in battleground districts that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make the biggest impact possible in the elections on November 6th. As of the release of this episode, we are 21 days out from election day. That's exactly three weeks away, leaving just three weekends of volunteering left. State voter registration deadlines are passing quickly, so if you're still not registered or know someone who's putting it off, make that your first priority. Because we're running short on time,
time, for the next few weeks, we're only going to highlight the battleground races that are considered toss-ups. However, we will still provide information for all of the battleground races in the show notes and at the Midterms Minute HQ at bestofleft.com slash midterms. Last time, we told you about the toss-up Senate races where Democrats could pick up seats. Today, we're going to focus on the vulnerable Democratic incumbents in toss-up Senate races who must retain their seats. These races are, of course, all taking place in states which Trump won in 2016. Every one of these Democrats is a moderate at best, but they all voted against Kavanaugh and the GOP tax bill. As a reminder, 35 of the 100 Senate seats are up this November, including two special elections. Democrats are defending 26 seats, 10 of which are in states Trump won. They must retain all 10 of those Senate seats and pick up at least two more to take the Senate. We already covered Democratic incumbent Senator Bill Nelson's toss-up race in a previous segment on Florida's battlegrounds. But just a quick update that Nelson is only ahead of Governor Rick Scott by 1-2% to in most polls. It is going to be very, very close. In Indiana, where Trump won by 19%, Democratic incumbent Senator Joe Donnelly is facing Republican state rep Mike Braun. Braun is a businessman and NRA member who is vehemently anti-abortion and wants to replace Obamacare with... Oh, right, he doesn't have any idea what to replace it with. Donnelly has a slight lead on Braun in most polls, but Politico has listed this race as the GOP's best opportunity to pick up a Senate seat. In Missouri, where Trump won by 19 percent, Democratic incumbent Senator Claire McCaskill is facing Republican State Attorney General Josh Hawley. Hawley is trying to paint himself as the legal champion of the people, but he's part of the multi-state GOP-led lawsuit that would completely invalidate the Affordable Care Act law if they win. Holly has a slight lead in most of the polls, and he is now using McCaskill's vote against Kavanaugh to claim she only cares about her party. When McCaskill won her re-election in 2012, it was the last time a Democrat won a statewide election in Missouri. In Montana, where Trump won by 20%, Democratic incumbent Senator John Tester is facing Republican state auditor Matt Rosendale. Tester won re-election in 2012 by less than four points. Trump publicly battled with Tester after he released allegations that the White House physician, Ronnie Jackson, Trump's nominee for the next U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, engaged in professional misconduct, including a DUI and mistreating an employee. Rosendale is a big Trump supporter and real estate developer from Maryland who calls himself a rancher every chance he gets, even though he doesn't own any cattle. His ads bend over backwards to call moderate Tester a radical leftist career ruiner, unsurprisingly. Tester currently has a slim lead in the majority of polls. And finally, in North Dakota, where Trump won by 36 percent, Democratic incumbent Senator Heidi Heitkamp is facing Republican Representative Kevin Kramer. Heitkamp won re-election in 2012 by only 1%, and Trump's margin of victory in Montana was the largest of any Republican presidential candidate in the last five elections. Though Heitkamp has tried to show her independence by saying she has voted with Trump 50% of the time, she voted against Kavanaugh. Kramer, an anti-abortion, anti-Obamacare candidate, heartily endorsed by Trump, is pouncing on Heitkamp's votes against Kavanaugh and last year's tax bill as evidence that she is voting along party lines. And of course, he's doing everything he can to make voters associate Heitkamp with Hillary Clinton, including, and I wish I was kidding, literally merging their faces in a TV ad and calling them Hydery Clint Camp. Yeah, someone paid money for that creativity. 
For anyone who's already registered to vote or thinks they are, please take a few seconds today to confirm your registration. Voter purging is happening across the country, and the sooner you know there's an issue, the better your chance of getting it corrected. Visit headcount.org and click Verify Your Registration Status under the Voting Info tab. There, you can quickly be directed to your state's specific website to confirm your voter registration. If there's a problem, contact 866-OUR-VOTE to report the problem and get guidance. Links to all of the information you heard today, as well as additional resources, are linked in the show notes, and today's Midterms Minute, along with all of our election information, can be found at bestofleft.com slash midterms. So if making the blue wave a reality in November is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting Democrats and battleground races across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. That there's sort of these social norms about what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And when somebody breaches them and everybody responds as though that was fine, people revise them. And so you gradually start to lose your standards and your compass. Obviously, one organization or one political party that has done that very strongly over the course of the last year is the Republican Party, which was at first horrified by the rise of Donald Trump, um, which is you know, populated with people who are deep members of a conservative movement that, you know, I'm not a conservative, um, you can agree with or strongly disagree with, that had actual beliefs and ideals that have very little to do with what Donald Trump now stands for, right? So as somebody who was a member of that movement, and, and, and I believe still is, did it take you by surprise to see how people who probably in their own mind thought that they are animated by public policy and they're animated by a view of what's good and bad for America, are willing to throw all of that overboard in order to become lackeys of Donald Trump? Well, I am no longer a Republican, but I do consider myself politically where I've always been, which is center-right. And the short answer is yes, I have been horrified. The number of Never Trump Republicans, if you will, those people who considered themselves Republican, had always voted Republican, who knew he was trouble at the beginning, knew he was trouble during the election, and have continued to oppose him now because he has done and been everything that we predicted is pathetically small. It is a fraction of a fraction of the party. It has virtually no representation in Congress itself, because to one degree, they have all accommodated themselves. And to the chagrin of those of us who do consider ourselves to be the never Trump, it has intellectually corrupted people in think tanks, people at journals, people in universities. What we thought was the intellectual firepower, if you will, and the organizational might on the right. And I think we have underestimated three things. One is the degree to which tribalism infected both the right and the left, but that the right had the sense of victimization, woe is me, we've been abused by the left. And although they don't like Trump, they like the 
he is hated by the same people that they have hated. Mm. And the allure of having a champion, and I'm not talking about the unemployed steel worker in Ohio. I'm talking about the guy who does economic policy at Heritage. Finally, we have someone who is just giving it to the other guys. Hmm. I'm on top. I don't have to take the intellectual and emotional abuse of liberal elites. So that's Mm. the first thing. The second problem is that the ability to rationalize one's role in the great scheme of things is tremendous. I have abided most of my life and certainly my writing life in the admonition that one doesn't bring up Hitler because that diminishes the importance, but one has to go for an appropriate analogy. And that is that profession after profession, institution after institution, acclimatized themselves to Hitler, both because they underestimated him and they believed they could control, Hmm. direct, manipulate him. And although Donald Trump is not Hitler, and I want to be absolutely clear about that, the same mentality that the country needs me to be there because without me, they'd be far worse. Because I'm having some effect, because I can think of horrendous things that he has not done, that he might have done had I not been here, is such a attractive narrative for people to allow them to do what they want to do, which is serve in government or have powerful positions, that they have been able to rationalize almost everything. And I think as a psychological phenomenon, as a human phenomenon, I greatly underestimated that. The third is that I think I have come to terms, sadly, with the realization that some of the criticism on the left about the right was accurate. There is a much larger segment of xenophobia, of racism, of a sense of white grievance than I was willing to acknowledge in the past. And so the things that horrify me do not horrify them in the same Hmm. way, or they maybe don't horrify them at all. And I think because so many of the tripwires for me are those beliefs in democracy the American experience, immigration, that immediately set me off that it's not such an issue for these people. And therefore, they don't have that visceral reaction when he tries to demonize immigrants as gang members and murderers. It simply doesn't. There's sort of two ways, isn't there, of putting the point about the way in which the present political moment helps us to rethink the nature of a conservative movement of a Republican Party over the last 20 or 30 years, right? And one is to say that, well, perhaps the things that, you know, occasionally were subtext, but were never text, uh, actually drove much more than we realized. That it wasn't just the occasional Republican politician saying something xenophobic or saying some, you know, using racist dark whistles, but actually all along held more of a power within the movement and more of the attraction to a large number of the members of the movement, even if obviously not all of them, than we realized. Another point, and those two aren't mutually exclusive, is to say that perhaps also the power of the ideas themselves was much weaker than it seemed. That actually the church of deregulation and lower taxation and, and all of those things had a lot of worshippers that were there for different reasons. And that in order to rebuild any form of conservative movement, it would require people to actually not just 
distance themselves from the nasty things that have now become text and that used to be subtext, but also actually to sort of reinvent the liturgy itself, as it were, as a very labored metaphor now. I agree, yes and yes. And I think it has been somewhat difficult for my conservative friends and ex-friends to understand that those two things are going on simultaneously. And that, yes, the realization that, as you beautifully put it, that subtext is more text than I was willing to acknowledge is true. But that at the same time, both what plowed the way for Trump and what demands that people who consider themselves to be conservative or center-right, however you want to phrase it, those people who hold those ideologies have to look more critically at the intellectual bankruptcy of where the movement has been after 30 years, which is still stuck in the same dogma, still stuck in the exact same articulation of certain principles that are no longer suited to a 21st century with a whole slew of problems that Ronald Reagan never dreamed of and certainly Milton Friedman didn't have a chance to wrestle with. To put it in Milton Friedman terms, we have market failures all over the place <laughs> and we have market distortions all over the place. And there is a role for government and we can debate how much it is. But I think this view personified by, as the left used to call it, trickle down economics, mm. that if you just reward the rich, all boats will rise, has been disproven by history and disproven by experience. And to keep insisting that it is so is a certain intellectual and moral blindness. We have a serious problem, not just between rich and poor, but that same rich and poor divide overlays urban and rural, mm. overlays race, overlays a whole set constellation of qualities. And that we lack a unifying narrative, we lack a unifying culture, and we lack a means by which we can fill up the center. We've gotten way too sticky at the ends of the economic ladder, both at the mm -hmm. bottom and the top. And that those are, if not unique problems, problems that have really blossomed in the last decade. And Republican ideology has not responded to it in a meaningful way. to ask you about this comment that you made, that the Republican Party, you said, is the most dangerous organization in world history. Can you explain? I also said that it's an extremely outrageous statement. But the question is whether it's true. I mean, has there ever been an organization in human history that is dedicated with such a commitment to the destruction of organized human life on Earth? Not that I'm aware of. Is the Republican organization, I hesitate to call it a party, committed to that? Overwhelmingly. There isn't even any question about it. Uh, take a look at the last uh, primary campaign. 
plenty of publicity, very little comment on the most significant fact. Every single candidate either denied that what is happening is happening, namely serious move towards environmental catastrophe, or there were a couple of moderates, so-called Jeb Bush, who said, maybe it's happening, we really don't know, but it doesn't matter because fracking is working fine so we can get more fossil fuels. Then there was uh, the guy who was called the adult in the room, John Kasich, the one person who said, yes, it's true, global warming's going on, but it doesn't matter. He's the governor of Ohio. In Ohio, we're going to go on using coal for energy, and we're not going to apologize for it. So that's 100% commitment to racing towards disaster. Uh, then take a look at what's happened since. The uh, uh, November 8th uh, was the election. Uh, there was, as most of you know, I'm sure, uh, very important conference underway in Morocco, Marrakesh, Morocco, uh, almost roughly 200 countries at the uh, United Nations-sponsored con uh, conference, which was uh, the goal of which was to put some uh, specific uh, commitments into the uh, verbal agreements that were reached at Paris in December 2015, the preceding International Conference on uh, Global Warming. Uh, the Paris Conference did intend to uh, reach a verifiable treaty, but they couldn't uh, because of the most dangerous organization in human history. Uh, the Republican Congress would not accept any commitments. So therefore, the world was left with uh, verbal promises, but no commitments. Well, last November 8th, they were going to try to carry that forward. Uh, on November 8th, in fact, uh, there was a report by the World Meteorological Organization, a uh, very dire analysis of the state of the environment and the light likely prospects. Also pointed out that we're coming perilously close to the uh, tipping point where which was the goal, uh, the, the goal of the Paris negotiations was to keep things below that, coming very close to it, and other uh, ominous uh, predictions. At that point, the uh, conference pretty much stopped because the news came in about the election. And it turns out that the most powerful country in human history, the richest, most powerful, most influential, uh, the leader of the free world, uh, has just decided not only not to support the efforts, but actively to undermine them. So there's the whole world on one side, literally, at least trying to do something or other. Uh, not enough, maybe, although some places are going pretty far, like Denmark, a couple of others. And on the other side, in splendid isolation is the country led by the most dangerous organization in human history, which is saying, we're not part of this. In fact, we're going to try to undermine it. We're going to maximize the use of fossil fuels, could carry us past the tipping point. Uh, we're not going to provide funding for, as committed in Paris, to uh, developing countries that are uh, trying to do something about the climate problems. Uh, uh, we're going to dismantle regulations. Uh, 
uh, that retard the uh, impact, the devastating impact of uh, production of carbon dioxide and, in fact, other dangerous uh, uh, gases, methane, others. Okay, so the conference kind of pretty much came to a halt. Uh, the question, it continued, but the question was, can we salvage something from this wreckage? And pretty amazingly, the countries of the world were looking for salvation uh, to a different country, China. Here we have a world looking for salvation to China, of all places, when the United States is the wrecking machine that's threatening destruction. In the, with all three uh, uh, branches of government in the hands of the most dangerous organization in human history. And I don't have to go through what's happened since, but uh, the, uh, uh, in general, the cabinet appointments are designed to assigned to people whose commitment and uh, uh, beliefs are that it's necessary to destroy everything in their department that could be of any use to human beings and wouldn't just increase profits and power. And they're doing it very systematically, one after another. Uh, EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, has been very sharply cut. Uh, act actually, the main department that's concerned with uh, uh, environmental issues is the Department of Energy, which also had very sharp cuts, particularly in the environment-related programs. In fact, there's even a ban on uh, posting and publishing information and material about this. And this is not just at the national level. Uh, the Republican Party, whatever you want to call it, has been doing this at every level. So uh, in North Carolina, a couple of years ago, where the legislature, mostly thanks to gerrymandering, is uh, in the hands of the Republicans, uh, there was a, a, a study, uh, uh, they called for a study on the uh, effect of sea level rise, on what sea level rise might be on the North Carolina coast. And there was a serious scientific study uh, which uh, predicted, uh, not, I forget how many years, not a long time, about uh, roughly a meter rise in sea level, uh, which could be devastating to eastern North Carolina. And the legislature did react, namely by passing legislation to ban any actions or even discussion that might have to do with climate change. Uh, actually, the best comment of this uh, wish I could quote it verbatim, was by Stephen Colbert, who said, uh, if you have a serious problem, the way to deal with it is to legislate that it doesn't exist. Problem solved, you know. It seems to me that and looking at this with, you know, kind of overview that when societies are torn apart, like you're talking about, when when the social fabric comes unraveled, it seems that historically and whether you're looking at the United States, whether it's the Great Depression, whether it was the Civil War, um, you know, whether it's what's going on right now, whether it was Chile with Pinochet, whether it was Germany in the 30s and Italy and, and, and Spain, um, I mean, name your country. 
it seems like the precipitating factor or the major kind of pry bar that got in there that popped the first plates off was that of great wealth. It was well, I would basically call it, I would call it taking, taking by the overclass. Yeah, but it, well, that wasn't true in Chile, of course, under Allende. It, 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 it's it's economic crisis. So in because of Henry Kissinger and the CIA uh, and the IMF and you know they orchestrated a crisis in Chile. They mm -hmm. created a crisis. There was fuel shortages and everything else. Uh, Weimar is is or I covered the war in Yugoslavia, which was also caused by an economic meltdown. What it is is in essence the the established political elites are unable to respond in a rational and effective way to increasing distress within the society and then are finally discredited by uh, usually an economic crisis. Uh, in our case, you had the destruction of the popular movements, including labor unions and I would argue the press, that once protected American working men and women, uh, in, in essence, the and both the Republicans and Democrats, especially under Clinton, are culpable. So the system seizes up. It's seized by a cabal, in this case, corporate. So all of the institutions rewrite the laws. Matt Taibbi had a good book on this divide. There's essentially two tiered legal system, one for the rich, one for the oligarchs, one for corporations, and then one for us. Um, I mean, they have, at this point have orchestrated virtually a tax boycott. Under Eisenhower, uh, the highest... Uh, tax rates for the wealthiest individuals and corporations was 91%. Um, an out-of-control military. We used to challenge weapon systems. Now uh, Trump just gave them a 10% increase, and they're running the wars in the Middle East. So essentially what happens is the system doesn't respond to the rights and grievances of the underclass, and that provides fertile territory for a demagogue like Trump, or in the case of Yugoslavia, Slobodan Milosevic, Radovan Karadzic, or go back to Weimar, because in, the, in 1928, the Nazi party in Weimar was pulling in the single digits. Then you had the 1929 crash. How did Ebert and the Social Democrats respond? Well, they imposed draconian forms of austerity uh, demanded by the international banking system that had bailed the government out, including abolishing unemployment insurance. And what I fear as we stand on the cusp of another economic dislocation, it's coming, even the New York Times a couple of weeks ago ran an editorial on this, uh, is that uh, everything is in place for some very frightening reconfigurations of American society. We already have a president in office who incites violence, who is... Uh, openly carries out attacks against other ethnic and racial groups. I mean, the whole idea that 11 million undocumented workers, all of whom probably earn below the minimum wage, are somehow responsible for the economic freefall of the United States is patently absurd. But when they have a lock on the media systems, I mean, I mean, you discuss it, but but you know, when even on MSNBC, are you ever going to hear a serious discussion of corporate capitalism and how it works? Never. That's been banished from yeah. the airwaves. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so we have now the Republican Party planning to impose austerity on us. Uh, this, you know, and when we well, look they at just what made happened, these tax cuts permanent, I mean, this is insane. Oh, but it goes beyond that. I mean, there, there are serious conversations going on inside the Republican Party right now about can we use this debt? We're, 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 they, you know, this was Jude Wininski laid this out in 76 with his two Santa Claus theory. When, you know, when Republicans are in power, run up the debt. Right. When Democrats That's come right. into power, That's scream about the debt. That's what and, Reagan did. Yeah. Right. And exactly. And, and in fact, Reagan was the first president to actually enact Wininski's two Santa Claus theory plan. He tripled the national debt. And the debt is is reaching the point now where within 10 years, 
our interest payments on the national this debt. This is in the New York Times, $900 billion. Yeah, are going to exceed our military right, budget. Right, right. Well, not just the military. Education. Oh, all, you, you know, know, right. the military budget already cons- right, you know, right. has subsumed right. all of that stuff. And so what it is providing these guys is, and they're giddy about it, yeah, of course. the perfect That's excuse right. To, to impose austerity, uh, literally, to say, you know, we really can't afford federal long-term unemployment insurance. I mean, they've already cut it down to yeah, one year. That's right. We can no longer afford Social Security. We that's can right. no longer afford that's Medicare. Right. Medicaid, we can't afford that. That's for poor people. And, 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 and then they're going to get a court, if they get Kavanaugh on the court, who's going to go back to the Lochner era and say, you know, Medicare and Social Security are actually unconstitutional. Right. They should be voluntary programs. And no, the minute no, they no. become voluntary programs, they're dead. This is a massive reconfiguration of America that we're right on the edge of. Right. Nobody's talking about, right. except the Republicans that I know who are, they're giddy. I, yeah. You know, I, I can't come up with a better word. This is about to happen. We've been working on this since 1935. That's you know, what John Ralston Stahl calls our slow motion coup, coup d'etat, the yeah. coup d'etat in slow motion. And we are now coming to the denouement of that. And the, it, let's be clear, the Democratic Party has been culpable in this. Oh, I agree. You know, this is the, the DLC. I mean, this is in, not in just a Republican late, Yeah, in the late uh, 80s. Yeah, this this is, although... But you the, are right. We the, are... You know, and, parts of the Democratic Party and, are pulling and, away from that And that's quick why too. the police in your town are carrying long-barreled weapons and wearing Kevlar vests and driving armored personnel carriers. Right, because they're, they're anticipating social unrest, which will happen if we have austerity. So, Chris Hedges, what do we do about this? We have to, you know, and the, um, the problem is it's not done overnight. We have to rebuild those popular movements that created a rational response with the breakdown of capitalism under Roosevelt in the 1930s. Would this start with unions? Of course. Unions, we have to rebuild. I mean, we people like you and me who've been pushed to the margins of uh, the media landscape uh, because the subjects that we tackle are taboo. Uh, uh, in the corporate landscape, including, of course, Comcast, which owns MSNBC, uh, NPR, PBS is a wholly owned subsidiary now of the Koch brothers. Um, so we have to rebuild institutions to pit power against power. We've just heard clips today, starting with Jacobin Radio, talking with Corey Robin, examining the through line of what always drives the right. The Diane Reem Show spoke with conservative Jonah Goldberg about Trump, the Republicans, and the conservative movement. Big Think featured Kurt Anderson explaining how religion turned conservatives against science. Past Present laid out the evolution from family values conservatives to religious liberty conservatives. The Good Fight talked with conservative Jennifer Rubin to break down where the GOP has gone wrong from a center-right perspective. Democracy Now! had a conversation with Noam Chomsky about his assessment that the GOP is committed to the destruction of life on Earth. And finally, we just heard the Tom Hartman program speaking with Chris Hedges about the impact of radical conservative policies on society and the only way to fight back. Members will be getting a bonus episode with an additional clip on today's topic. Tom Hartman gives more attention to the historical context of today's politics, especially the conservative movement, than just about anyone else. So today I'm sharing one of his many rants about the trajectory of conservatism from Barry Goldwater to Donald Trump. 
Also on that bonus episode, I'm going to share some of my thoughts in response to Newt Gingrich using lions to argue against feminism and a racist voicemail that I received here at the show arguing that the races are different and ranking everyone by IQ points. To hear all of that, to vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details on membership, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on your devices, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. My name is Aaron. I'm calling from Anderson, South Carolina. And I just listened to the show on, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh. And at the end, you're collecting suggestions on, you know, what, you know, progressives can kind of do structurally to help us out in elections so we don't keep getting beat. And one thing I've been thinking about lately is, you know, turnout is a good indicator of, of progressive wins in elections. What do we have to do to get election day to become a national holiday instead of celebrating you know and and taking days off for columbus day and president's day and these different different national holidays why not replace one of those or add two with election day i'm sure there's some antiquated reason why it's on tuesday in november but it should be a holiday i mean it's 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 patriotism it's, uh, you know, one of the most basic rights of, of being a citizen in this country is the right to vote. Why not remove some of the obstacles? And I'd find it, you know, hard for the case to be made against it if it really came down to a national discussion why you wouldn't want people to have easier access to voting because we've all dealt with the frustration of trying to figure out how to do our workday and get down to the polls. It's just my thought. I'd love to see what people have to say about it. And again, Jay, thanks for your show. I've been watching for years and listening. I appreciate what you do. Thanks. Hey, it's Jason from Chicago. I was listening to your Part of the Solution podcast, and I was a little bit disappointed. I don't want to call and just peddle like the same political cynicism. It's not that cooperation and harmony aren't good things. I guess the shortest way I could put it was around the time I listened to that podcast, I was in a day long debate with my coworker, a far right Christian Republican about how uh, he believed Jesus would have supported enhanced interrogation techniques. Jesus would have seen the intention in our hearts to save the lives that we wanted to save in this fantasy ticking time bomb scenario. And of course, Jesus would not only support torture, but the separation of children. And if these parents didn't want their children taken away, why are they committing a crime? And um, I'll end the, I'll end the, the message by saying like, there is no right. I monitor the right wing podcast. I listen to Limbon Jones and all of the red ice TV. There's no podcast called how to talk to the left, how to convince the left, how to bring them over to your side because they know that they don't have to make sense, that they don't have to bring anyone over and that their job is to crush the enemy. And so, like I said in the beginning, harmony is good. Cooperation is good in terms of tactics and temperament. What we need to be exporting to young people is a, unfortunately a sort of lockstep 
military attitude and not how do we tickle these people's tummies? It's I tried to avoid swearing on this voicemail. It was disappointing, and I really am getting tired of it. Enjoy Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, a couple of quick responses to Aaron and Jason. Uh, First of all, I actually have the answer for why Election Day is on Tuesday in November. It's always nice to be reminded of this. It goes back to our agrarian days. The idea was you can't have it on the weekend because people are usually in church uh, on either of those days. And uh, then people lived so far away from their polling place, you had to give them a day to get there. So you couldn't have it on Monday because you have to give people a day to travel. So election day was Tuesday. And the reason it's in November is for sort of similar reasons. Uh, you didn't want to have it in one of the seasons where you were like sowing your seeds or, or you know, tending to your crops and, and you had to wait until after harvest in October and you wanted to do it before winter got really bad. Therefore, November. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't make any sense by modern standards. It, it absolutely works against any efforts to increase voter turnout. I'm totally in favor of changing the day entirely, making it a national holiday, etc. The answer to Aaron's question, how do you do that, is political will. It really is that simple. It's something that could just be changed by the legislator. It's not part of the Constitution or anything like that. It's just a law. Uh, Now, sort of in a strange way, this actually leads to my thoughts on the next call, which has to do with the morality of laws. So like with election day, it's clear that it affects different groups differently. So people who have nine to five jobs, who work on weekdays, uh, who are just generally not as able to get away from their lives to go vote on a random Tuesday, as maybe they would be able to on a weekend, uh, it, it tilts the electorate toward People with more flexibility, usually more affluent, uh, people with more regular jobs, people honestly with jobs that pay more and, and have more stability are the same kinds of jobs that will let people off to go vote. And, and it's not a big deal. Whereas if you're working hourly on a shift, it might be hard to get away. So you, you can make a really good argument for the idea that election day being set the way it is, is not morally neutral because it affects people differently, even though you can say, hey, it it applies to everyone equally, sure, but it doesn't affect everyone equally. And so Jason brought up his debate with a conservative over, for instance, family separation. And they're like, hey, look, like if they don't want their family separated and for themselves and their children to be psychologically tortured, well, then they shouldn't have broken the law. And, and, And what that is an example of is this concept that has crystallized for me really recently, the idea that that conservatives generally believe that laws, once instituted, are morally neutral, that if they apply equally to everyone, then there is no way that 
they can't be morally neutral. Therefore, whatever punishment there is for the law is excusable because it's fair in their minds. And they, and they can't understand how a law could be written in such a way that itself is immoral, therefore making the outcome of executing that law and the punishment associated with it immoral as well. They just don't see it that way. So, Jason, I, w- I would love if you would go back and chat with your Christian friend about their understanding of the morality of laws and just ask, I don't know, like, is there a law that you can think of that would apply to everyone equally, but that you would see as immoral? And then get back to us on that. I'd love to hear from someone who was willing to answer that question. Now, as for militant politics, uh, here are my thoughts about politics in general. Um, I think that we're in the middle of a big wake-up. I think people are beginning to believe again that democracy itself isn't necessarily the problem, and that if we had the right people in office, it might be okay. Because on one hand, you can see the really stark differences when really radical conservative governments get in. You can see how bad things get. And then there are these like flickers of hope. Like in the US and, and the UK, we have politicians like Sanders and Corbyn who, who are really presenting this different view on how politics could work, how it could look, what we could advocate for. And, and I think people are really waking up finally. Like, I feel it in myself. I'm not just theorizing about how other people might feel. Like, I feel this myself, that um, this this sort of renewed interest, this renewed dedication to electoral politics. You know, like, we do these uh, um, midterms minutes now, and I've never done that before. And in years past, I have thought of it as like, completely secondary, honestly. Like, I, I figure I do this show, I put the uh, I put the issues out there. Come on, it's a political show. Like, everyone who listens knows they should vote. Like, what do I need to go and make a big effort encouraging people to vote? I'm sure, I'm sure they got it under, under control. But no, like, people are figuring out it's really important to dedicate yourself to a really strong, strategic electoral strategy. I, I really think that people are figuring that out. And, you know, it's, it's not like this is brand new, but there was this old belief that I think stemmed very much from the counterculture era of the 60s. People grew up in that baby boomer 60s hippie era. And, and for a lot of people, not everyone, but for a lot of people, to not vote was a form of protest against the system which was disastrous. <laughs> it was horrible. I, I, you know, I, I, I have no idea how many terrible things could have been avoided from the 70s to now if this enormous generation of people had been, instead of being radicalized to the point that they unplugged from society, if they had been radicalized to the point that they engaged in society. And, and what I'm hoping is we sort of went through that multi-decade phase where a lot of people were like, no, fuck it. And the new generation is, is, is understanding, okay, that didn't work. Fuck that. We're going to be the most powerful political force uh, you know, that we've seen in decades. That's my hope anyway. So addressing 
his comments about my like being part of the solution episode, what I mean by that is you should be a, a good ambassador for every group you belong to, whatever group that is, if you're a progressive, if you're a man, if you're white, you know, whatever the deal, um, try to be a good ambassador. But that doesn't mean that politics is patty cakes. Uh, there, there's a little confusion there, I think, from Jason about how I take one issue and, and apply it to another. Um, you know, obviously, we're advocating every tactic we know of to regain and retain power. We're, we're not casually like trying to be nice to conservatives and hoping that uh, progressive ideas can take hold. So, Jason, it sort of sounds like you might be conflating the idea of treating conservatives like humans, which is more or less what that episode was advocating, with an election strategy. And that is not my election strategy. It just makes my life better, and I think it makes society better to understand where people are coming from. I think that is inherently valuable. So the biggest problem I have with Jason's recommendation for a military-style approach to politics is that one of the first steps in the military is to dehumanize the opposition, to make them literally less than human or, like, evil incarnate. And not only—I mean, I, that's, I think, immoral— in the military, but uh, it's exceptionally immoral in politics. So not only is that strategy horrifying and immoral, it doesn't work on progressives because the policies we advocate for are an attempt to help everyone, to make life better for everyone. So it doesn't do us any good to see half the country as evil or inhuman because they are also part of the group we're trying to help. Uh, so hard-nosed politics and a willingness to fight hard for what we believe in, sure, absolutely, but not militant. You know, the, the left is never going to get anywhere wishing we were as authoritarian and militant as the right. We simply don't function that way, so we need to play to our own strengths, not someone else's. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this or anything else. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog, and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.